Well, good morning to you all once again. Thank you for having me and allowing me the opportunity to minister the word again with you this morning. My wife, Olivia, would have loved to have been here, but unfortunately this week our family, including myself, was stricken down with a bad stomach bug. Thankfully, it doesn't seem to be COVID as we have a negative home test, but I suppose the one thing that the kids look forward to when they get really sick like that is they get to taste all sorts of flavors of Pedialyte, which they've been solely surviving off of for several days now. <laughs> but uh, as I'm also a little under the weather, you'll understand is if I practice good social distancing hygiene and uh, trying not to shake anyone's hand, which, which is a terrible feeling for a preacher. You know, you always want to shake people's hand and be friendly, but it's for all of our protection, right? So I'm just going to give you an elbow or give you a wave from a six-foot distance or more. But in any case, there's, there's always a verse that I think of when my children get sick in particular. It's uh, Psalm 103, verse 14, which says, For as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he is mindful of our frame, that we are but dust. So thank God for his compassion. Thank the Lord for his mercy. And before we go to the word this morning, would you join me in a word of prayer? Let us pray. Our Father who is in heaven, O Lord, we are mindful that we are but dust. Lord, we are mindful that we are frail and weak and needy. And as we approach your word this morning, would you help us as it were to remove the sandals from our feet for we stand on holy ground? Would you help us, O oh God, to harden not our hearts as we receive your word this morning? This word which is able to save our souls. This word above all earthly powers. O oh Lord, we know your promise that those who are humble and contrite of spirit and who tremble at your word, these are the ones to whom you will look. Lord, we tremble at your word here this morning. Come speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, I want to draw your attention to a very famous and very beloved passage of the Bible. It is perhaps the most beloved passage of the Bible. Spurgeon himself called it the pearl and the nightingale. Alexander McLaren said that this passage has dried many tears and supplied the mold into which many hearts have poured their peaceful faith. J.J. Stuart Perrone said, There is no passage in which the absence of all doubt, misgiving, fear, and anxiety is so remarkable. One author argued that this may be the most famous, most familiar passage in all of the Bible. It has been memorized by millions. 
In motel rooms around the world, travelers find a Gideon Bible which directs them to this passage. It has been remembered by the soldier in the trenches and by the weary businessman sitting by himself in his hotel room. It has found its way into the heart of the prison inmate and the prodigal son. Theologically, it is actually one of the most complex pieces of scripture, so much so that only God could have authored it. It has a scope which is staggering. It sweeps from eternity past to eternity future. It starts with the eternity of God and it ends in glory. It speaks of God's condescension, Christ's role. It teaches us a theology of suffering and how to react to the Lord's discipline. It may even hint at the Last Supper and Christ's betrayal at the hands of Judas. It even gives us a theology of heaven. This text really has no parallel. Interested yet? The text of which I speak is not in the New Testament. It's in the Old Testament. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 23. Psalm 23. The 23rd Psalm. The psalmist David writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This psalm is part of what is known as the Messianic Trilogy which includes Psalm 22, Psalm 23, and Psalm 24. Each of these three psalms speaks of the Savior, Jesus Christ, in different aspects. Psalm 22 pictures the Savior as the suffering servant. Psalm 23 as the tender shepherd. Psalm 24 as the triumphant king. So Christ goes from the cross in Psalm 22 to provider in Psalm 23, and to ruler in Psalm 24. The, glorious the gracious sacrifice became the good shepherd who becomes the glorious sovereign. But if you read this psalm, you will notice that it is not pure, dry, hard theology, as if we were looking at God coldly and scientifically through a microscope. But rather, it is about warmth. It's about tenderness. It is deeply personal, deeply intimate. 
There's something very real about this psalm. It's as if we are stepping into David's private prayer closet and getting a peek into David's personal relationship with God. If you hang around the evangelical church long enough, you will almost certainly hear the phrase, a personal relationship with God. Personal relationship with God. Well, that sounds good, but what does that really mean? What does that really look like? That's what Psalm 23 is about. So much of the Old Testament is about Israel's corporate relationship to God, about national relationship. How do I relate to God as a member of the nation of Israel, as a member of true Israel? But not here. Not here. In this psalm, there are no plural pronouns. There is no we or us or they. There are only singular pronouns. There is only my and me and I and he and you. This psalm is very personal. Psalm 23 is an overflow of David's personal experience with God. One-on-one, -on -one, singular, deep, intimate, personal. This is a peek into David's realer-than-real relationship with God. But the interesting thing is that David describes his relationship with God in a way that we would not expect. He doesn't speak in terms of cradle formulations or doctrinal statements, but rather, he paints pictures, he draws images, he speaks poetically. And in his pictures, he describes his relationship with God in terms of paradoxes. Paradoxes. Two seemingly contradictory things that are put side by side with one another. Two aspects that appear at first glance to oppose one another, but then they are put next to each other. They are juxtaposed together. So this morning, I want us to see three paradoxical pictures of a personal relationship with God. Three paradoxical pictures of a personal relationship with God. First, a picture of majesty and meekness. A picture of majesty and meekness. Verse one, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. If ever a psalm could stand on a single line, it is this one. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Look at this word Lord with me here for a second. Now, have you ever noticed in almost all translations of the Bible, there are two ways to spell Lord in the Old Testament? The first way is capital L, lowercase O-R-D. This is the Hebrew term Adonai, and it means sovereign, master, ruler. It's a title which speaks of authority. It's a title like Mr. or Mrs. or Doctor or Professor. It's a title. It is not a proper name. It's not like the name Benjamin or David or Oscar. It's a title, and it is not the word that David uses here. Now compare that 
with the second way to spell Lord, as we see here in verse 1. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. All capitals. Whenever you see capital L, capital O-R-D, this represents the majestic, sacred, personal name of the living God. The name of God. It is the name revealed to Moses in the wilderness at the burning bush, the divine name Yahweh. Yahweh. I am who I am. In Exodus 3.14, Moses asked, Who shall I say sent me? What is his name? And God said to Moses, I am who I am, Yahweh. The point is, God always is. God is always alive. God is always existing. There is never a moment of time in which God is not I am. God is always I am. In eternity past, God was I am. In eternity future, he will be I am. At the moment of creation, God was I am. During the exodus, God was I am. When you and I were born, God was I am. And on today, January 23rd, 2022, God is I am. God always is. The name speaks of his absolute sovereignty, his total self-sufficiency, his uniqueness, the fact that he depends on nothing and no one for his existence. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Yahweh, the immortal one. Yahweh, the ancient of days. It doesn't get much higher, much more transcendent, than this. This is the personal name of God. It's a personal name for a personal psalm. The name Yahweh begins and ends this psalm. Look at it in verse 1. Yahweh is my shepherd. Then again in verse 6, I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. The divine name Yahweh then forms brackets, bookends around this psalm. Psalm 23 begins and ends in eternity. It is rooted in the eternal nature of God. And Yahweh here is pictured as a shepherd. Now here's where the paradox comes in. A shepherd in those days of ancient Israel was not a mighty thing. It was not a glamorous job. Only now, after the story of David and then of Jesus, do we tend to romanticize the concept of a shepherd? But back then in ancient Israel, to shepherd and guard and pastor livestock? Oh no, that's a terrible job. That's a lowly job. It is the lowest of all professions. It was a job reserved for the underprivileged, the meek, the poor. No kid ever grew up wanting to become a shepherd. A shepherd had to live with the sheep 24 hours a day, seven days a week, day, night, summer, winter, fair weather, foul weather. They ate with the sheep, drank with the sheep, slept with the sheep, and even smelled like the sheep. It was not a noble task. And here is where the paradox comes into focus. On the one hand, we have the great I am, 
master of the universe, worthy of all praise, strong, mighty, self-sufficient, highest of the high, Yahweh. And on the other hand, we have the lowly, broken, humble, meek, lowest of the low shepherd. And they are one and the same person. Brothers and sisters, we must see that the splendor and uniqueness of our God lies not just in his majesty as Yahweh, nor just in his meekness as a shepherd, but in the way his majesty and meekness mingle together in perfect proportion. This is what this image is trying to portray. A God who is highest to lowest, strongest and humblest, and everything in between. Now think of this paradox when I read to you the following quote. Jonathan Edwards says, there is an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies in Jesus Christ. Let me read that again. There is an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies in Jesus Christ. Meeting together in Jesus Christ are infinite highness and infinite condescension, infinite justice and infinite grace, infinite glory and lowest humility, infinite majesty and transcendent meekness, infinite worthiness of good and the greatest patience under the sufferings of evil, absolute sovereignty and perfect resignation self-sufficiency, and an entire trust and reliance on God. Psalm 23 is about a God with this admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies, who is highest to lowest, strongest and humblest, and everything in between. Like a king riding on the foal of a donkey, like a ruler born in a manger. It is a stunning contrast. Brothers and sisters, what does it mean to have a personal relationship with God? It means that you know God intimately, both in your strong moments and your weak moments. You know that he's there for you in the best of times and in the worst of times. He's someone that you can trust to sympathize with you, both in seasons of joy and seasons of sufferings. He knows the highs and the lows. There is no possible situation that you cannot turn to God for. All of your diverse joys, triumphs, trials, and sufferings are met by his diverse excellencies. He is Yahweh, a shepherd. The point of verse 1 is that God is completely and comprehensively sufficient in all imaginable areas of life. And notice that he is Yahweh, my shepherd. Yahweh is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. There's a contrast here. If God is an all-sovereign, all-sufficient, all-powerful shepherd, What does that make us? Sheep. 
We are sheep. This is a sheep's eye view of God. A sheep is fully dependent, helpless, defenseless. Left to themselves, sheep lack everything. And that's why David goes on to say, I shall not want. That is, I shall lack nothing. And in verse 2, David tells us what we shall not lack. Rest. Verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. One of the most basic necessities of life. Rest. We shall not lack food in green pastures. A perfect place not only for rest, but for grazing, for food, for sustenance, for nutrition. The shepherd guides the sheep to eat. Now here, I want us to do away with our preconceived American notions of Psalm 23. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know where the psalm is printed on some nice poster or picture frame or book. And there's a picture of a shepherd, and he's surrounded by his sheep. And in the distance, in the background, there are green, rolling, grassy hills as far as the eye can see. And it looks like it's set in England or New England or the Alps or something like that. Well, that's wrong. David didn't write Psalm 23 in England or Vermont or New Hampshire or Switzerland. David wrote Psalm 23 in Southern California. That's right. The climate of Israel is remarkably like Southern California. And you know very well that here in LA County, in Southern California, in the winter or even in the summer, on a parched summer day, a meadow or a patch of green grass is very hard to come by. Just drive around. You don't see a lot of green randomly growing in patches. But the shepherd knows exactly where the grass grows and leads his sheep to eat there. We shall not lack water. He leads me beside quiet waters. Boy, David understood a Southern California drought. Brown is the new green. I used to pastor this church in Riverside. And the thing that always puzzled me about Riverside is there's no river. There's no river there. Water is hard to come by in a desert. Just as a shepherd knows where the grass grows, he also knows where to find those little streams of water where he can lead the sheep to drink to their heart's delight on those parched Middle Eastern summer days. But not only does he give us physical provision, he also gives us spiritual provision. We shall not lack physically, verse 2, and we shall not lack spiritually, verse 3. He restores my soul. Literally, the Hebrew says, he causes my soul repentance. Or he converts my soul. He retrieves my soul from the brink of death. And then he guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. The translation, paths of righteousness, was first made famous by Martin Luther, who first translated it that way. 
And Luther was trying to tell us that this is not just a straight way, but a right way. Not just a safe way, but a righteous way. A way that is faithful to God. A way that is faithful to the law of God. The first one is negative. He restores my soul. He takes me off the evil path. The second is positive. He puts me on the good path, away from wickedness towards righteousness, away from unholiness towards holiness. And Yahweh does this all for his namesake. The health and well-being of the sheep redound to the glory and honor of the shepherd. If the picture of verse 1 is complete sufficiency in all areas of life. Then the picture of verses 2 and 3 is complete dependence on the shepherd in all areas of life. In reality, a sheep without a shepherd is a dead sheep. It's a dead sheep. Do you realize that there are such things as wild horses, wild dogs, wild cats, But there is no such thing as a wild sheep. That's because a wild sheep is a dead sheep. A sheep is completely dependent on its shepherd in every area of life. That's what it means to have a personal relationship with God. Brethren, are there areas of your life in which you have excluded God as your shepherd? You say, Lord, I'm going to depend on you in every area except this one. In every trial except this one. In every temptation except this one. In every relationship except this one. I exclude you from this area of my life. I don't want you in this area of my life. I'll depend on you in everything except this. I'll trust you, Lord, in everything. I just can't trust you with the health of my child. Lord, I'll trust you in everything. I just can't trust you with my marital problems or my dating relationship or my singleness. Lord, I'll trust you in everything. I just can't trust you with my financial situation. Well, if you're doing that, You're treating God like a consultant, not a shepherd. A sheep could never exclude its shepherd from any area of its life, because if it does, it dies. A sheep is moment by moment dependent on its shepherd for everything in life, even life itself. So brethren, Are you depending on God, your shepherd, moment by moment for everything in life, even life itself? Or are you exercising independence from your shepherd in any area of your life? As a resident physician, I used to do these 30-hour, sometimes 34-hour shifts in the ICU. And you're up 30 hours straight, taking care of 30 patients, half of which are on the brink of death. 
You're up 30 hours straight doing crazy things, sticking tubes down people's throats, hooking them up to machines and making them breathe, feeding catheters down people's jugular veins in their neck close to their heart, doing CPR on people, not a wink of sleep. And before these 30-hour shifts, I used to tend towards nervousness, towards anxiety. Well, at the back of my house, there's a window in the back of my kitchen, which faces to the backyard. And there's a shrub right there in your line of sight. And I love this shrub because the hummingbirds come and feed at it in the morning. And I love to watch the hummingbirds with their wings flapping a thousand miles an hour. And they're reaching their little beaks into the flowers of the shrub because it reminds me of Matthew 6.26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father provides for them. Are you not of more value than they? Well, there was this one particular morning where I woke up particularly anxious. And I said to myself, Lord, how am I going to get through the next 30 hours, physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally? Now, standing in my kitchen, drinking coffee, and I look up for my cup of coffee. And instead of a hummingbird feeding at the bush, the hummingbird is right there at the window, staring me directly in the face, flapping its wings, looking at me directly in the eye. It's as if God was looking at me directly in the eye at that very moment, saying, Ben, trust in me this day. I will take care of you as I always have. I am Yahweh your shepherd. Trust me. Depend on me. And then the hummingbird flew away. Brothers and sisters, to have a personal relationship with God means to be completely dependent on a completely sufficient shepherd in every area of your life. Second, the second paradoxical picture of a personal relationship with God is a picture of comfort through discipline. A picture of comfort through discipline. Verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The valley of the shadow of death is the most famous translation, and it's tough to beat that. But the Hebrew isn't just talking about death. The literal wording is the valley of deepest darkness or the valley of the shadowiest of shadows. Job uses this phrase to refer to a season in a valley of despair. So the valley of the shadow of death includes death, but it is broader than just death. It refers to all the seasons of life that are dark. But notice... The valley of the shadow of death is not an accident. It is as much a part of the right paths which lead to green pastures that lay beside quiet waters. And it is the only way to the house of the Lord. It is the only way to the house of Yahweh. So the valleys of deepest darkness are not the consequence of the shepherd getting lazy. This is not a wrong turn. 
This is not a mistake. This is part of the shepherd's plan. Sometimes God gives you valleys. Sometimes God gives you the valleys of deepest darkness. Now that might be fearful, but notice what David says. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. The presence of the shepherd makes all the difference. Who you walk with through that valley makes all the difference. And here we can tell that this is a personal relationship with God because David goes from talking about his shepherd in the cool, lush pastures of life to talking to his shepherd in times of deep darkness. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He switches from the third person to the second person. He goes from talking about his shepherd to talking to his shepherd. Brethren, when you walk through the valleys of deepest darkness, do you talk to him? Do you speak with him? Do you go from the third person to the second person? Do you know that your shepherd is there with you, walking with you? How is God's presence manifested to us in these times of deepest darkness? Well, here you'd expect him to say something like, For you are with me. Your food and your gentle care, they comfort me. Or something like, For you are with me, and your blanket, which keeps me warm at night, it comforts me. But no. He says, Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And here's where the paradox comes in. Now, the rod and staff were instruments of power and protection. Yes, absolutely. There can be no doubt that that is an emphasis in this text. But sometimes we forget that the rod and staff were also instruments of correction, of discipline, of guidance. And that's a nuance of this text that we cannot overlook. They could be very painful to experience. The rod was a cudgel, a club, carried on the belt. And it was used to ward off wild wolves and animals to protect the sheep. But it was also used to keep the sheep in line, to discipline the sheep when they got unruly, to get the sheep to go where you wanted them to go. It's the same word, shebet, used in Proverbs 13.24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son the rod of discipline. The staff was a stick with a crook, a stick which curved around at the top. It was used to corral and pull back the sheep when they got into trouble. Sheep are known to be very stupid animals, and they would often wander into ditches or into mires. Sometimes they would even be known to wander off the side of cliffs. And the shepherd would use the staff, the crook, to wrap it around the neck of the sheep and yank them back into safety. Sound painful? Yes, absolutely. The rod could be painful. The staff could be painful. But they are both good for the sheep. Kevin DeYoung says, it's like saying as children, Dad, Mom, when I'm in my moments of deepest darkness, your spanking spoon, it comforts me. 
Now that's a paradox. That's unexpected. In this world, there are two general approaches to trials and suffering. The first is what we will call the religious approach or the moralist approach, the legalist approach. When suffering hits a religious person, the religious people tend to ask, what have I been doing wrong? Why is God punishing me? See, God is keeping track. Religious legalistic people generally believe that if you lead a good life, good things will happen to you because, after all, God is keeping track. If you just pray more, give more, have more faith, do more good works, go to church more, God will bless you and you'd suffer less. After all, you've earned it. That's the religious approach. The other approach is what we'll call the secular approach. Whereas religious people tend to see suffering as punishment, secular people see suffering as a result of random acts. See, my suffering proves that God isn't there. Or worse yet, God doesn't care. My trials are meaningless, random events. Life is a crapshoot. It doesn't matter anyway. These are the two approaches, religion and secularism. Now, think with me here. Underneath it all, both of these approaches have something that they share in common. Control. Control. When these people lose control over their life circumstances, they seek to exercise control over everything. The religious person seeks control over his life by saying, if I just do this, this, and this, well, then God will bless me. He has to. I've earned it. And then I'll suffer less. The secular person seeks control over his life by saying the opposite. Suffering is just randomness. It's the result of random acts. So I can live my life however I want. It doesn't matter anyway. Both of these responses at their root are just power plays to try to keep you in control when life seems out of control. Brothers and sisters, is there any chance that either of these mindsets have crept into your thinking? Well, God must be punishing me. No, he's not. He's guiding you to the house of the Lord. God isn't there. Of course he is. He's there walking with you. Do you talk to him? Well, God doesn't care. Of course he does. He cares enough to guide you with his rod and his staff. Well, there's a third approach that only a person with a personal relationship with God can have. Trust. Trust. When life seems out of control, give yourself over to God. When everything in your life seems to have gone out of control, give yourself over to a sovereign shepherd who is in complete control. Trust. Brothers and sisters, are you walking through the valley of deepest darkness right now? Are you walking through the valley of the shadowiest of shadows? 
Sometimes it can seem so dark that you don't even know where to set your foot next. Sometimes it can seem so dark that you often sigh bitterly. And it's only after the fact that you look back on that season of life and you realize that God was there with you. Your shepherd was there with you. He was guiding you with his rod and his staff. He was keeping you from falling into the ditch with his rod. He was keeping you from falling into the mire with his staff. And yes, it can be so painful. It can be so painful. But he will guide you safely through. Brothers and sisters, if you are walking through the valley of deepest darkness right now, fear not. For the shepherd not only leads you to the valley, he will walk with you in it and he will guide you safely through it. Spurgeon says, when you cannot trace his hand, you must learn to trust his heart. The third and last paradox of a personal relationship with God is a picture of celebration in suffering. A picture of celebration in suffering. Verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. In this verse, the metaphor changes. The image goes from shepherd to host, from pasture to palace, from grazing to feasting. God is no longer shepherd. Here, he is our host. And we are no longer his sheep, but we are his honored guests. He anoints our head with oil, a gesture reserved only for the most important guest, the VIP. There's abundance at this feast. For my cup overflows, the wine cup never runs dry. This is a picture of a glorious feast. This is a picture of a celebration. But this feast is in a strange place, isn't it? Here's where the paradox comes in. A feast in the presence of my enemies? Well, we normally flee in the presence of our enemies. We normally fight in the presence of our enemies. We don't normally feast in the presence of our enemies. The point is in life, there are always enemies. The world is a hard, fallen place. You cannot escape that. But in the midst of it, if you have a personal relationship with God, God will meet you and he will give you abundant joy, abundant honor, abundant glory. Now, brothers and sisters, do you get what this is saying? Do you get what this is saying? This is not a feast after the enemies have left. This is not a celebration after the suffering is gone. This is not joy following the tears. No, this is a feast in the presence of my enemies. This is joy in the midst of suffering. This is joy smack dab in the middle of the tears. There's a kind of joy that comes from avoiding suffering. That's not the kind of joy mentioned here. And that is not the kind of joy that will change you. No. This is the deepest joy in the midst of deepest suffering. This is true glory among true pain. This is splendor in the furnace of affliction. 
those of you who have a personal relationship with God know that your times of greatest intimacy with the Lord have never been where the sun is shining and everything is going your way and life is hunky-dory. No. You know that your times of greatest intimacy with God have also been your times of deepest darkness, of greatest suffering. Have they not? Samuel Rutherford, one of the Westminster divines, said when he was put into the cellars of affliction, the great king keeps his finest wine there, not in the courtyard where the sun shines. Brethren, God is eager to feast with those who wait for him. And David finishes in verse 6, Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. Now the translation, they follow me, is it's simply too weak. It should be, they pursue me all the days of my life. They aggressively pursue me, or they pursue me with aggression. They chase after me. Now the image is, on the one hand, you have the enemies chasing after you. You have temptations chasing after you, running after you, pursuing you. But on the other hand, you have something that is chasing after you that is even stronger, even better, even greater than that. The goodness and loving kindness of God. The covenant attributes of God. The covenant actions of God. They are pursuing you even more strongly and they will make sure you get to the house of the Lord they will make sure you get to your heavenly home. Well, that's what a personal relationship with God looks like. But how do you get a personal relationship with God? How do I enter into a personal relationship with God? Well, the answer is right before us. Psalm 23, verse 1. The I am is my shepherd. John 10, 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. Christ is the good shepherd. Christ is the I am. Christ is Yahweh, my good shepherd. But of course, the New Testament gives us a bit of a twist to the story. For not only did the shepherd guide the sheep and nurture the sheep, but the shepherd became a sheep. The shepherd became a lamb. The shepherd became a sheep who became a sacrifice. John 1.29 says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the shepherd became a sheep. And in yet another stunning turn of events, the sheep rose up and killed the shepherd. One writer says, the shepherd gave his life for a sheep who strangely became his murderers. It was our sin, brethren, that killed our shepherd. Behold, my shepherd upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. The shepherd laid down his life for his sheep. Then look with me again at Psalm 23, verse 5. 
You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. God is host, and Christ is our host. Luke 12, 37, Jesus says he will be our host, for he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. And here we have perhaps the greatest paradox of all. Not only will Christ be our host, not only do we feast in the presence of our enemies, but we have to realize that before coming to Christ, we were the enemies. We were the enemies. Before we were saved, we were the enemies of the host. Before our salvation, we were the enemies of God. We were the enemies at the table. Romans 5.10 says, While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Brothers and sisters, we were the enemies at the feast. We were the enemies, but now, because of him, we are the honored guests. Jesus Christ, the shepherd, laid down his life so the sheep could have a shepherd. Jesus Christ, the host, died so that his enemies could feast with him one day. Friends, unbelievers here this morning, now you know Psalm 23. But I ask you, do you know the shepherd of Psalm 23? Do you have a personal relationship with God? There is only one shepherd who can walk with you through the valley of the shadow of deepest darkness, through the valley of the shadow of death. And if you do not know him, then you will walk through that valley alone. Friends, unbelievers here this morning, Repent today, believe in the Lord Jesus, so that you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let us pray. Father who is in heaven, thank you for our great shepherd who was raised from death to life by the blood of the eternal covenant. Help us, O oh God, to trust our shepherd, to trust in our all-sovereign, all-sufficient shepherd. May we do so to redound to the praise and honor of your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.